0: Hey everybody, it's Lisa Lampanelli, the queen of Maine, and you know what? I got my own podcast. Yeah, does everyone have one? Pretty much, but mine's different because I'm going to help you like I help myself. Get Stuffed with Lisa Lampanelli every week is going to teach you how to have the fabulous life that I have. If you don't listen, you're just stupid and don't want to help yourself, so don't even listen. I don't even want you to. But if you do, if you disobey my orders and listen, you can go to feralaudio.com or download it from iTunes. But again, don't listen. I don't even care. Today's episode is brought to you by Last Rampage, the new true crime film starring Robert Patrick, Heather Graham, and Bruce Davison. And we had the pleasure of speaking to someone involved with the movie. So uh, my name is Alvaro Rodriguez. I'm the screenwriter for The Last Rampage. As a writer, to me, I'm less interested in genre and more interested in character. And, you know, I've written in a lot of different genres, you you know, kind of horror genre, thriller, or action movie, or kids movie, or, you know, different kinds of things. And it was always more, I was always more interested in character, and hadn't really quite done something like this before, but was just uh, really drawn to this idea of um, of a guy like Gary Tyson, who, you know, had been in and out of institutions from the time he was, you know, a kid, um, and, uh, and having sort of raised three sons from behind bars. get past that is you know by this you know by dying basically but kind of threatens him a little bit but um so that was really you know the touchstone for me uh trying to figure out how to tell that story don't miss last rampage the true story of the prison break of gary tyson in theaters september 22nd and available for on-demand pre-order august 22nd Find out more on Twitter by following at LastRampageFilm or on Facebook.com slash LastRampageFilm. Feral Audio.
1: This is a very special episode of The X-Files Files. Files. Uh, This episode I talked to Mark Snow. So I was obviously very, very excited. It was a huge thrill. Uh, His music is very, very important to me. Um, You know, I can't think of The X-Files without thinking of that music, and I can't listen to that music without thinking of The X-Files. And I think of how many times that music terrified me, and it's the single thing that got me excited to watch the show again. You know, as soon as I started the first episode, the music came on, and I was like, oh yeah, right, this is gonna be great. You know, whenever I think of the show, I think of that that eye and the stretchy man and that disco ball thing with the electricity on it. And I think of the music and I think of being in Pakistan and watching the show and, you know, thinking the world is way weirder and cooler than I thought it was. I've talked about this on the show a bunch, but this show just made the world seem bigger, you know. And there were a few things that just like become part of your DNA. You know what I mean? Like you like a lot of stuff but few things really crawl in there and stay in there forever. For me, it was Indiana Jones and Ghostbusters and Gremlins and Roger Rabbit and definitely the X-Files. And part of all that was the music. The music is the link to the sensations I felt then. This music is a bridge to my childhood. Like they said, the sense of smell is most closely related to memory. I bet sound is second because every time I hear the music, I feel something crazy in my loins. I go back to my childhood arguing with people about whether the show was real. I go back to reading UFO books when I was a kid, looking at checkerboard burn marks. I go back to seeing that picture of Loch Ness Monster, you know that one that everyone's seen where it's in a silhouette and I remember looking at it and going, how can they say it's not real? Look, this is a fucking picture of it. It's right there. Or I think of stories of spontaneous human combustion or doppelgangers or people who can bend spoons with their mind and all that stuff crystallized on the X-Files for me. And I get a weird, compressed version of the excitement of all those things right when the music first kicks in. Right away, the world gets weirder. And not just that, seeing this show that was so wonderful inspired me to try and get into this field. You know, the idea that I could try and make other people feel the things, the kinds of things that I felt was so exciting and undeniable. I just couldn't not try to do that. I wouldn't be a comedian if it wasn't for Ghostbusters or Gremlins or Indiana Jones or The X-Files. And then when I think of what the music means to the show itself, you know, there's always the cold open, something crazy and magical happens. It's alien and fucking weird and you're like, how could this make sense? And then the music drags you into the world we know, the world of the X-Files. Shit is crazy out there, but don't worry, our guys are on it. That's what this music means to me. So I kind of wanted to say all this stuff to Mark Snow when I was interviewing him. I was going to talk to the exact person that inspired all these feelings. But there's that weird balancing trick of telling someone how much their work means to you, but also not freaking them out and doing a good job. So I was really nervous, and I couldn't sleep the night night before. Um, I'd spoken with him a bit before to schedule it. I knew he was a really nice guy, so I wasn't nervous for that. I was just nervous. I don't know. It was one of those. I had I had, I scheduled it for pretty early in the morning. morning. And I woke up at 3 a.m. and I was like, fuck, I missed it. And then I woke up at 4 a.m. like, fuck, I missed it. And then I woke up at 5, I missed it. One time I remember I woke up and I just put all my clothes on and I was like, oh, it's only 5 a.m. So I was super crazy nervous to talk to him. And then Dustin came over, the producer, and I'd written all these questions for Mark Snow, you know, that I was going to ask him because I was nervous. I wanted to really prepare, fall back on it in case I got tongue-tied. And one of the questions was what was the process of writing the music? Was it that you guys went back and forth and tweaked it a bunch, or did you just write it and send it in and be like, fuck you, say no to this, you know? Because to me, that piece of music is so perfect, as music and also the theme for the X-Files. And I honestly never got to ask that question because you sort of answered it, and the answer that he gave me was so surprising. Um, So please listen to this, and then I have some thoughts about the interview right afterwards because I just sort of couldn't stop thinking about his answer to that question, Um, so... Uh, hope you guys enjoy this. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I want to say, you know, uh, I've been doing this show for about a month or so. and The X-Files is my favorite TV show of all time. And, um, you know, every time I hear your theme, I always get chills down my spine. There's never going to be a time in my life where I'm not going to have a reaction from listening to the music you made. Oh,
2: thank you so much for that.
1: Uh- <laughs> It it really is. I mean, it's rare that a TV show have, where uh, the theme song is so tied to the TV show. You know, it, it's like such a big part of uh, people's experience of the show.
2: Well, I think that's uh, you know, I you know, writing music and coming up with these things is always an adventure and an incredible, you know, abstract experience. You never know what's going to kind of pop out, um, and how this one came about is uh, is even more interesting than most. I don't know if you know about the story behind it.
1: No, I don't. Please tell me.
2: Well, Chris Carter, the creator, um, he came over to my studio and brought a whole bunch of CDs and telling me he likes... You know, the percussion on this thing, the singing on this, the guitars on this, the ambient stuff on this. So um, I said, OK, and I did something and he came back and said, well, it's that's good, but it ain't, you know, just the so anyway, this went on. Two, three. It went on two more times. So there were three attempts I did, which I thought were a little more mm, I don't know, maybe what you might expect or standard or something. And and he was he was being very, very respectful and and decent. And I said, look, here's an idea. Why don't you let me erase all of the ideas you know we've had so far and just start from scratch and you know maybe I could come up with something that's, that's really more unique, et cetera. And he said, okay, great. So he walks out and I happened to have a certain kind of sound element on my keyboard and I just put my elbow down accidentally, not too hard, but, and there was this, um, delay echo effect uh on this piano sound and I heard it and it, it was the sound of the da 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 yeah. oh, wow. And I thought, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> so and then I thought, well what can what about the notes, you know? So eventually I came up with the four notes, da pa, da, da, ba, da, da, da 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 and it had that, you know, echo Yeah. Uh, delay effect, <clears throat> and you know one of the things he we discussed, or Chris really wanted nothing slick, nothing overproduced, nothing traditional, but really ultra simple. So I thought, okay, well here's a cool little accompaniment piece, and I knew the whole theme couldn't last more than forty seconds. So I thought, well. All right, that's a good little rhythmic accompaniment. Now, what, what, what else could there be in this thing? And I thought, well, he liked a lot of you know pads and sustained ambient stuff. So why don't I put, come up with a clever combination of that underneath there as a sort of a supportive low tone, and then write a melody on top of it all. So, I came up with the melody, which is, you know, in reality, fairly simple. And it was okay, fine. Now, what instrument or sound is going to play this? So, I experimented with everything from piano to strings to woodwinds and voices and, you know, xylophones and all kinds of stuff. And I'm screwing around and this patch on one of my samplers comes up that says whistling joe and i said oh what's this (laughs) i play i you know open it up and and play it and i thought wow that's pretty cool um but still you know it wasn't the other things i wrote before this were real pounding bam you know like what you'd think might be in some sci-fi show so i thought maybe we could get away uh, from that and so I put this whistle on and and just kept thinking about just keep it simple, simple. And there's a little low percussion hit at the beginning, boom, da 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 da, and it also ends the piece. And I remember my wife heard it and came in. She said, "Oh, that's different. That's nice. I mean, but no, you know, no one's jumping up and down yet. All right," I said, "Okay, well." I'll bring him back and we'll see. So Chris comes back and he hears it and says, well, let's hear it again. I do. And he says, oh, that's, that's good. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's go with that. You know, uh, but still we were all pretty, uh, you know, oh, this is okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he liked it. And I f- felt good about doing something different. So then um, just as sort of, the next part of the story, he said, now, look, we have to play this for the executives at Fox because they have to sign off on it. And I said, oh, all right. So in those days, when it was 1991 or something like that, I think, or two, but uh, he said, all right, show up at this office, I'll meet you there, you know, bring a boom box and your cassette. And I said, oh, all right. <laughs> So we show up and... He meets me there and he says, Oh man, shit, I have to go. I have to go to a casting meeting and stuff. Look, you take care of it. It'll be fine. Oh, no. oh nice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I go in there, three guys in suits, very polite, very nice, sit down. All right, let's hear it. Boom, play it. And then I'm quiet. And, and one of them says, Well, you know, I think what it just, I don't know, I get. And then he looks to his partner and he said bill what do you think and bill goes you know it feels i'm getting i'm i'm i have a reaction i i it's just and he turns to the other guy and the other guy goes through the same thing so basically they're not saying anything because they don't know they're dumbfounded (laughs) you know um because nobody was gonna say it sucks or it's fantastic so
1: (laughs) right they don't want to commit
2: Right. No one was going to commit. So anyway, a few months later, (laughs) the thing comes out and it's like everyone's talking about it and it's becoming, you know, sort of a big deal. One of these guys called up and said, hey, Mark, yeah, hi, this is uh, so-and-so. Remember the meeting we had? I said, I do. And he said, didn't I tell you how fantastic this was? And I said, (laughs) "Uh, you sure did. (laughs) Absolutely. So anyway,
1: (laughs) so you, you know how to work in the, in showbiz, Mark.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say, you know what? You're a, you know, a so-and-so and and (laughs) you're lucky you have a job. Hang up the phone, you know? So anyway. (laughs) So
1: when you guys did the theme, you're saying that, as you said, your wife said, nobody's jumping up and down. So that theme is the theme that everyone knows from the X-Files. You guys weren't super excited about it. Is that right?
2: Well, no, no, at the, at, yeah, you know, it wasn't, it didn't, you know, I, it, it was so, such a a different approach to what, you know, I think a lot of people were thinking a the theme of the X Files was going to be. I think, you know, everyone was ready for more, more activity, more percussive pulsing and, you know, some strange sounds or, you know, but, uh, I think the thing that was made this thing so unique was it's sort of a, it's kind of a really creepy, quiet type piece. It's not over the top, you know. And, and to think of this whistle thing, you know, as uh, as the lead melody line. Uh, you know, the last time I heard that was on the Andy Griffith Show.
1: You know, (laughs) yeah. Wow. I mean, I guess that's why the theme works so well It's because it works well with with the visuals and the feel of the show. And um, not to say that it it doesn't work on its own as a piece of music. I remember later there were dance remixes and stuff, right?
2: Oh, there were all kinds of things. I mean, even the guy, I think his name is Mike Oldfield from who did uh, that great tubular bells piece. Do you remember that? I don't
1: remember that Actually, one. Actually
2: it was it was the it became the theme of the Exorcist, the first Exorcist movie.
1: Oh wow. Okay, yeah, I know that.
2: And it had like Right, right. Yeah. You know, anyway, so that was great. He did a version of that and a bunch of, you know, remix guys did and uh guy guy in nashville did a slide guitar kind of Chris, <laughs> I, Chris Isaac type moody version so it's been it's been all around I mean
1: did you expect that all that was going to happen when you were in that meeting playing it for these three executives were you surprised at how uh, uh successful a piece of music this became
2: yeah it was it was like i just i just couldn't believe it you know um and what's you know, sort of wonderful and scary at the same time, you know, coming up with it wasn't particularly, you know, I wasn't, you know, uh, under the influence of anything or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like pushing and straining and trying to, and racking my brain and going through some kind of, you know, 10-hour artistic, you know, fit or something. Uh, It really just happened so so quickly and easily, you know, and I thought part of what I thought was, well, let's do it again, get another show and do it again. Well, nothing has been anything like that. Uh, And it's still this fantastic mystery, uh, just how it came about in the first place. You know, when, you know, my wife said, oh, that's very nice. You know, and Chris Carter comes on and says, yeah, that's, that's good. And,
1: you know. <laughs> yeah, you your elbow hits a key, and you find Whistling Joe, and the rest is history. I mean... That's-
2: that's pretty much it. Yeah.
1: I just, you know, I've been rewatching. This is going to, I hope this isn't scary. I've been re-watching the show for the fourth time. So I've seen the seasons three times. It's the fourth time. And every time the thing that gets me in the mood is listening to your music. Like as soon as it plays, I'm like, all right, I'm back. And I can't wait to watch all of it again. Did you, had you seen the pilot when you started uh, uh, coming up with the theme song? Or was this before the pilot was ever made?
2: Uh, no, I did see the pilot and um the pilot was they took they tempt the pilot in other words they took music from other sources like some film scores and tv scores and put it in the pilot you know as temporary score and all of that music was really ambient and sort of sound design and very you know vaporish and you know it, there was no melody and you know and and everyone said gee this is this is what we like now huh. so when you do the score uh we we just like this feel so you know hang on to that idea and i said all right so but before i did the score of the pilot i did the theme and in a funny way that really didn't dictate what the score of the pilot was you know because that theme had a little you know jaunty rhythm but in a kind of spooky way Um, they really wanted lots of sustain and just support the dialogue don't get in the way you know so that's uh, that's what I did and it turned out to be gee, for a 42 minute show without the commercials, you know, maybe 35 minutes of of music, which is a lot. Yeah. You know, and I think the thing for me that always is exciting is when I would see the show on TV, there was always a teaser, you know, before the show started. And it was usually those things were always so beautifully written and directed and, produced and uh, acted, you know, and it was always, you know, it starts out all those teaser teasers usually started out fairly innocent. And then in that, whatever it was, two, three, four minute, you know, period, just build and build. And it would be a big, yeah, you know, and then all of us it go to black for about two seconds and then bam, then it goes, goes into the theme. And I always thought, wow, that was how that laid in there. That specific time was just so perfectly, you know, done. Yeah,
1: yeah it worked so well because, they, I mean, the cold open became such an iconic part of the show as well. So, it'd be you know, someone's just going about their day and then suddenly, a you know, a vampire or whatever that's, it is. And then they die quiet yeah. for a second. And then the music saying, oh, our guys are on it. Don't worry. They'll figure this out.
2: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that's a good interpretation.
1: Um so when you watched the pilot, did it did it did you like it? Did you feel that this was a special show that was going to connect with people?
2: Well, what was interesting was, you know, at that time years ago, Jillian and David were like babies. I mean yeah. you know, I forget how old they were, but they just looked, you know, like 15 years old or
0: something
2: <laughs> and their experience you know with each other was like limited or you know certainly nothing and uh I was thinking wow this is a this is a pretty cool subject and and I was wondering are these kids kind of up to the task and as the show com- went on, I mean, you're talking about the pilot. The I thought the pilot was, was really great, but I was wondering, wow, you know, can it sustain and where's it going to go from here? And it's just amazing how they grew into the parts. And even more amazing is really the ensemble. You know, there are some of the actors who do return, you know, um, have recurring roles that was always great you know uh, to have this ensemble group but i'm even talking beyond that i'm talking about the 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 ensemble of writers and directors you know and producers it was it was such a the chemistry with this group of people was pure magic you know i it's as if, you know, if someone got knocked out of the loop there, the thing would kind of fall apart, which didn't happen. You know, there were a couple of guys who came and went. But there was this sense of how the thing should be constructed and where do we go from here? And can we get black humor into it? And what about all the mythology shows? You've got to keep a thread going with that. Um you know, it's just that, you know, it's like, you know, either like the cast of a of a sitcom or a TV network drama show or cable show that's gone on for a long time that the chemistry with the, the actors and the writers and directors, producers, that's always, to me, a magic thing, because as we know, Many you know TV shows are are made and not many <laughs> succeed.
1: No, not many do, and very few sort of become you know um, iconic and legendary. Next falls of the show that I think is going to be around forever. Um, did you? Oh, I should have asked this a little bit earlier. I guess the opening credits, the way they look, had you already seen that when you were making the music, or because the part of the thing is the, the the visuals and the music work so well together that it almost seems they were created at the same time now i know that's impossible but had you seen the opening credits when you were uh, scoring the music the the uh, theme
2: no it's a it's a good question i just did the music and they gave it to the you know the picture people and they they went to town with it you know and i think they really they had the same uh, i wouldn't say problem but the same experience like they did three or four or who knows? Ten, maybe you know, versions of the thing, different uh, you know combinations of you know edits, etc., and and finally it it became what it what it is. So yeah, actually, so the music came first, and then the picture came after.
1: I mean, those worked so well together. So it seems to me like you were of the a fan of the show. You obviously, I mean, you know, you watched every episode because you had to score it, but you liked watching the show as well.
2: Well, I, I did. You know, I certainly was so intimate with every moment of every episode. Um, it was, if I had the time on whenever night it was at first, I don't know, I think Friday, then Sunday, I'm not sure again, but... Uh, it was always fun to be able to turn on a TV in one part of the room or whatever house I was in, you know, to uh, to experience that, and and hopefully having it sound as good as I remember when we mixed it, and it and it always did. I remember some of the sound effects editors would complain to Chris Carter, "Oh, this music is so damn loud, you know, turn it down. We can't hear our." You know, our traffic noise. And he said, well, that's how we're doing it now. So, you
1: know, uh, Do you have a particular episode you really liked or is there a particular memory scoring an episode that was uh, challenging or interesting?
2: Well, you know, with, with the X-Files, I just can't even possibly say my favorite. You know, I can remember some as soon as I remember one, it, Reminds me of another, so forth and so on. Right. You know, just right at this very second, for, for whatever reason, maybe it might be totally unexpected, but the very last episode of the whole series, where which was one of the few times I could use the theme with the whistle as a very melancholy... Uh, Mm, you know, somewhat, somewhat sad piece that, for me, wrapped up all of those episodes. You know, because I hardly ever used the theme in the episodes; it wasn't quite uh, right. But this moment, you know, I think Mulder and Scully are in bed in some ho- hotel after you know, God knows what happened, some major situation. And, uh, you know, they're kind of emotional with each other, but, you know, they're just kind of holding on to each other, just like like kids lost in a storm or something. And having, you know, hearing and playing that, that simple whistle theme, you know, slower with either, I don't even know if there was any accompaniment to it, I don't know, it was, they all came over to watch, you know, that last episode at my studio, and I kind of teared up, and I looked over, and these tough guys, you know, they weren't, you know, (laughs) they weren't gonna (laughs) show their feelings about it, but no one said anything for quite a while, and I think it, uh, we were all thinking the same thing, the end of, you know, a huge, huge part of our, you know, professional lives that was so incredibly potent and remarkable and, you know, ever to be repeated again. Well, sort of unlikely, in the, except in the case of perhaps Vince Gilligan with Breaking Bad. <laughs>
1: you know, yeah. I'm getting, fun. like, choked up a little bit just hearing you tell the story of it. I'm getting chills down my spine.
2: Yeah, my my wife made some... You know, some snacks because it was just about lunchtime and and drinks. And we're, you know, sitting around or not sitting around, standing in the kitchen we had at the time. And, and everyone's kind of just just quiet. And, you know, we look at each other and, you know, give each other a hug and say, OK, well, See ya some other time.
1: (laughs) But I mean, it's also satisfying. I mean, you guys took this, did this huge thing and, you know, putting a bow on at the end must have felt gratifying in some way. Like, oh, we can't, we can't fuck this up anymore.
2: No, that's right. Uh, You put it, you know, you, you put it right. You know, um, I get a little, you know, emotional about just reliving that that moment, you know, it it was, uh, you know, to think nine years and where it's, how it started off, you know, and it's really, you know, something special, really amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, so I asked, uh, people on Twitter, if they had any questions for you and people came up with a couple of really great questions. Um, one, did you have a hand in picking, the other songs in the chill. I just watched an episode called Beyond the Sea, and you know, Bobby Darren's Beyond the Sea, that's where Scully's father passes away. Yeah, uh, that's a big part of the song, a big part of the show. And then there's an episode later called Home, um, and Johnny Mathis's Wonderful, Wonderful uh, plays at a very, very uh, uh, intense point of that episode. Did you have a hand in picking those songs as well?
2: No, I, I you remember it was Glenn Morgan and Jim Wong who i think did uh beyond the sea or and maybe even Howard Gordon That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh you know, i think they did that i was i was i was so busy with the score all the time i never was involved in you know those source pieces or the you know or the songs and they they didn't ever hire a music supervisor which wasn't all that in vogue at the time. But these guys, you know, had good, a good sense of what was current, you know, uh, or, or not, you know, sometimes there would be opera or, you know, stuff, big band from the forties and, you know, etc. cetera, old rock and roll. And, you know, so it was always cool what they, what they chose. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm glad I didn't have to, Sweat through that stuff because that's a whole other thing, you know. Picking a bunch of things, songs, and let's hear it. Oh, try the other one. What do you think? Oh, that's. <laughs> what do you think? That's. I don't know. Blah blah blah. You
1: know. Yeah, I mean, but whatever they picked worked so well with the score. You had Um, another person, Kristen Sauter, asked, "How was it the first time to play the theme with an orchestra?"
2: Um, it was it was very exciting, and I had an orchestrator who orchestrator who really did a great job in mimicking the you know the the rhythmic part that da that repeated so he had many instruments just trail off from one another, you know descending uh dynamics so you know it was, so that was pretty cool and and high violins and Piccolo played the whistle part. Um and recently there was a concert at Royce Hall at UCLA where they played music from current TV shows. And I was I was one of the guys on it and where they played the theme from Millennium and X Files. Um so but you mean know, to be really honest with you the original version is to me the the trademark you know (laughs) yes unless it unless it's like you know got a a 150 piece orchestra you know playing you know loud and there's for me there was nothing that could really top the first thing you know the first pass at it
1: yeah. Um, and you were saying how it's interesting. You know, a lot of people have these stories about coming up with these uh, things, and there's some kind of thunderbolt. And what you said was that you you know, the story of coming up with the theme, there really wasn't that moment where you were like, aha, this is it. We've nailed it. It felt like everyone just kind of was like, well, this is pretty good. And it's something that sort of grew on people as it went. Do you remember realizing at a specific moment where you were like, oh, this theme is really, really special?
2: Well, you know, my job is, you know, the part of the definition of my job, and and I think other composers for TV and film is collaboration. So I could think, <laughs> I could think whatever the hell I want, <laughs> and it doesn't fucking mean a damn thing, you know. And if Chris Carter comes in and says it sucks, well, that's it, you know. And if you want to be, you want to, you know be an idiot and start arguing well that's fine up to a point and then you better just shut up and you know write something else right. but there was something you know the innocent simplicity and quiet of it that the you know immediately I don't think any of us knew that it would be so such a big deal you know
1: um yeah and it it, it certainly it was a big deal um Thank you so much for talking to us, Mark. This has been such a thrill. It's been so fantastic. You know, when someone contacted me saying that they knew you, I literally uh, closed the email and didn't look at my computer for an hour because I was scared to read it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you so much for talking to me and um, and uh, for, I mean, creating such an amazing piece of music. You know, as I said, I'll be 80 years old and when I listen to that music, it'll bring me back to being a little, you know, 13 year old in Pakistan, uh, getting scared I, in the dark.
2: Yeah. I and mean, I, I understand you're, uh, you're on a, a show yourself acting, right? Is that right?
1: Yeah. It's called Silicon Valley on HBO. You should watch it. It's a fun yeah. show. It's oh, a comedy.
2: Yeah. My friend said, check it out. Cause it's really, really great. I, man, I look forward to it. That's, that's exciting. I, um, and, and I thank you so much for, you know, your questions were perfect. You're, you know, Uh, it wasn't wobbly or it was really beautifully put together and you know and when when that happens it's a pleasure talking about the X-Files
1: thank you so much Mark I hope to talk to you soon
2: very good thanks a lot okay bye bye
1: so like I said um, great guy he had great stories Uh, but one thing that really struck me was you know the process of him writing the music wasn't that exciting I wrote all these questions, you know, and I was like, "Or did you just give it to him and be like, yeah, fuck you, say no to this. And he was like, no, it's collaborative. You know, if Chris Carter says no, it's back to the drawing board. And it just kind of made me think of this lesson that I've learned personally not too long ago. And it's the single most important thing I've learned as a writer and as a stand-up comedian. Is that inspiration isn't always a thunderbolt? You know, it isn't always accompanied by angels singing to you. Sometimes it's just an errant elbow and a whistling Joe setting, and your wife going, "It doesn't make me jump up and down." And then slowly, the work you did is imbued with meaning. Other people's experiences imbue it with meaning. You don't create it in a vacuum. I I just couldn't stop thinking of the fact that they were all just kind of okay with it. You know, Mark Snow was okay with it. Chris Carter was okay with it. His wife was just okay with it. <laughs> And it was people's connection to it that made it ultimately so special, you know? You create art for whatever your reasons are, but its legacy is determined by the people experiencing it. You know, for years I thought of that moment, you know, Mark's nose in his studio, he writes the music and the heavens open up, and he's like, all right, I nailed it. Or when he started you know, telling me the story of how he met with the Fox executives, and I was like, oh, this is gonna be exciting. They're gonna be like, this shit is huge. And it wasn't like that. It wasn't exciting, it was never exciting. And it hit me so much when he said, i was just going to move on to the next thing, you know. And as someone who does stand-up and writes, I learned this lesson a couple of years ago, and it completely changed my life. It really has, the lesson of, you know, not to wait for magical inspiration. And for me, with writing stand-up, I became much better when I realized how much work goes into it. You know, I tell these long stories, like these seven, eight-minute long stories in my stand-up, and most of them took months to, like, get ready and it wasn't a particularly exciting or romantic process i write everything down i bold the stuff that i think is funny and then i look at it and see like all right this area doesn't have enough bold stuff I, I should write jokes there then i'd go out at night try the story come back rewrite the parts that work that didn't work go out try it again do that whole process over and over for months and these are stories i'm very proud of but i you know i have no like specific memory of where I wrote them there was no like specific aha moment and I I, my, my writing really and writing became much easier for me when I took off the pressure to like write something amazing you know I just try and write something that isn't horrible. I took off the pressure to, like, dazzle myself. And I think I'm better now than I've ever been. I mean, there's obviously a lot of work to do, and I have a long way to go. But my special, Beta Mail, it's on Comedy Central. Go buy it. I'm really proud of it, and most of it was written in non-Thunderbolt ways. Um, Dan Harmon, who a lot of you know, he hosts a show called Harmon Town. He said, and Dan's a wonderful, amazing writer, obviously. he's a He's a genius, but he said that... He considers himself a bad writer, and only 2% of what he writes is good. So the process is you write it, then you take out everything that's bad, and then you rewrite it, now you've got 4% that's good, then you take out everything that's bad, then you rewrite it, now you've got 6% that's good. And so it's hard work and sweat, you know? And then later you imbue it with moments of excitement and mystery. Like, I was in Chicago a couple weeks ago, which is where I started doing comedy, and that was the Starbucks I used to go to, to write. And I would just go there and write in the afternoon, and I wrote this one-man show there. And uh, when I was back there a week ago, I had this very strong visceral reaction when I walked by it. Like, this was the first piece of comedy that I'd written that felt personal and real, and it just expanded my idea of what could be funny, and I wrote it all at this Starbucks. And when I saw, saw the Starbucks, I had this sense of, like, this is where I found myself as an artist, which I understand is very self-aggrandizing, but you write stories about your life. You know, you add meaning to things later, but really, it was just a place I would go, and you hope to get a good seat, and it didn't smell bad, and then I mythologized the process later. So it's interesting how Mark Snow created this piece of music, and he had the sense to know, you know, just on to the next thing, and he didn't burden himself with trying to make magic. Magic just happened later when I touched all these people. I just moved to a new house, and I'm like, I'm pretty sentimental. Like, there's a new Radio Lab episode, I think it's called Things, and it's about how some people give meaning to things, to objects, and some people don't, like physical objects. I certainly do give meaning to objects. Like my X-Files DVDs, you know, I'll never get rid of them. I will always have them. I know you can watch them on Netflix, and I know the Blu-rays are going to come out, but I'm always going to have these DVDs because these are the DVDs that, you know, uh, help get my wife into the X-Files. And before me, I think I told the story here before, I got all of them off some guy on Craigslist whose girlfriend had dumped him. So whenever I see these DVDs, I think of that. I think of, you know, the history that he had with them. And I think of Emily slowly falling in love with the show. And I know that it's nothing intrinsic in these physical objects. It's not magic. It's my brain is assigning meaning to this, you know, physical object. But I like that this physical object has the property of getting certain parts of my brain firing, you know? Same with like video games. Like, so we were moving and Emily wanted to throw away Halo 2. And I was like, no, this is the disc. Like, this is the first game we beat together. And she was like, let's get rid of Saints Row 4. And I was like, no, this is the first video game we played together in different rooms. And then I think of this house I just moved into. It's just a piece of real estate, you know. And I'll have memories here. And I have this office in the guest house. And I will hopefully make stuff there that I'll be proud of. But right now it just feels like a nice place. And I get my coffee in the morning and I walk across my yard. And walking across my yard puts me in the right headspace to write fucking whatever, to write something. And that's the thing that this interview drove home again, is that, you know, to remove the burden of expectation, the burden of perfection, the burden of magic, just do your job and create and what you make might take on a life of its own. And something that doesn't even inspire your wife to move may end up scaring the shit out of a little Pakistani boy, inspire him to grow up, move to America, follow his dreams and start a podcast about the very thing that scared the shit out of him. Uh, Thanks for listening. wrestling fans and non-wrestling fans. Check out our podcast, You Should Love Wrestling, the show where we try to convince our friend to love wrestling. I hate wrestling. We talk about all the
2: best and worst parts of wrestling. Like Stone Cold
1: Steve Austin, spills a lot of beer, or Yoshiko. That's a literal sex doll that wrestles. All in an effort to help you love
0: professional wrestling. Subscribe to You Should Love Wrestling on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app.